In the modern age, some acts of consensual sex have been made into felonies. Have you ever wondered why some sex acts were criminalized but others were not? What was the goal of policing people's private lives? Find out on today's episode of Footnoting History. Welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Leslie Skousen, and today I will discuss the criminalization of sex in early modern England. The Reformation era was a time of great transformation for English society. It instituted major changes that affected the law, politics, gender roles, marriage, and just about every facet of daily life. Many of these changes were instituted in one great meeting of Parliament that spanned seven years and seven sessions. This was called the Reformation Parliament, and it met from 1529 to 1536. In the middle of this great transformative meeting of Parliament, there was a curious act in 1533 to 1534 called the Act Against the Vice of Buggery. Now, buggery, what could buggery mean? This could mean anything that did not relate to procreative marital sex. In theory, it could include adultery, fornication, oral sex, anal sex, plus more serious offenses, including bestiality, pedophilia, and even necrophilia. The law that passed in 1533-34 to claimed that no punishment existed for such devious acts. This was not entirely true, though. In fact, ecclesiastical law covered most facets of sexuality. So why did the secular law suddenly come into the game of policing sex? In the House of Lords, the bill was a little more specific. It was called the Bill Against Sodomy. And here we have the clue. It was actually about punishing same-sex relationships. But even so, the timing here was a little odd. Prominent historian of sexuality Alan Bray has found that, quote, there is no evidence whatsoever of any absolute increase in hostility to homosexuality during the early modern period. Not many men, for example, were brought into court for sodomy or bestiality during this period. So why was there suddenly, in 1533, a law against sodomy? Here we have to look to the timing of the bill. There is a new motive. In 1533-34, the Reformation changes were sweeping England, and the English government was preparing to investigate the monasteries, all of the cloistered lands across England. However, before they began this investigation, they had to deal with the fact that monks were protected by the church with a variety of special privileges, especially legal privileges. If permitted to stand, these representatives of the Catholic Church could challenge everything in the Protestant Reformation. So one solution was to criminalize sexuality and bar this from their privilege called benefit of clergy. Some historians, like Randolph Trumbach, have concluded then that the criminalization of buggery was the first step in justifying the dissolution of the monasteries and the seizure of their endowments. And so, in 1535, the visitation began. Secular representatives of the king and court went inside traditionally cloistered communities of monasteries, chantries, universities, and convents in order to evaluate the sexual proclivities of the supposedly celibate ecclesiastical representatives. Thomas Cromwell, the royal minister, sent representatives throughout England's private religious institutions in order to administer a questionnaire that comprised approximately 85 questions. Issues covered by these questions involved a variety of things, including how often the king's health was toasted at dinner time. It recorded the appearance of women or young boys within the dormitories of monks. It recorded the sleeping patterns and arrangements of the actual beds. There was an analysis of written letters, sermons, diaries, 
could there be any romantic language in there? There was an analysis of the exchange of gifts with local communities. Might there be some impropriety? If caught, this new law would place such people under threat of execution because this variety of sexuality was now a felony without benefit of clergy. If anyone in a monastery were found guilty, the monastery would then be at the mercy of the secular king in order to save the life of their offender. G.W. Bernard proposes that buggery was even designed to include masturbation, further targeting the celibate lifestyle. But did they find anyone? Here, the letters and papers of Henry VIII become our greatest tool. Reports of sexual misconduct began trickling in. Richard Layton, in 1535, reported to Thomas Cromwell that a priest in St. Austin's had become the father of six children by various women. Also in 1535, Cromwell explained to Sir Gregory Cazale that the king was obliged to send the monks to prison lest the contagion should spread. He reported that the monks' purposeful disgrace and their ready tongues vomited their venom all over themselves, forgetting their duty to king and charity to their country. In October of 1535, Richard Layton discovered a priest surrounded by women who had borne his children. The prior of Shellbread was said to have seven different women, and his monks each have four or five themselves. The prior of Dover and his monks were as bad as the others. Quote, Sodomites there is none, for they have no lack of women. The abbot of Langdon is worse than all the rest, the drunkenness knave living. Later in December, Leighton discovered nuns in London pregnant with two, already having three fair children between them. Also in 1535, John Apprice discovered five monks guilty of sodomy at Garendon, one with ten different boys. At Shelford, similarly, there were uncovered three known sodomites. At Thurgoden, ten sodomites, some with boys, were revealed to the royal representative, and the monastery at Carlisle contained seven known sodomites. In total, the numbers return approximately 150 men accused of sodomy, crossing 42 separate institutions. Even more people were found with concubines, prostitutes, children, and entire families living within the supposedly celibate closed communities. In addition to sexuality, cases of drunkenness, disorder, and sexual license were investigated. Suddenly, the religious communities were cracked open. The religious servants were drawn well into the royal jurisdiction and ready for prosecution. And with this movement, the church's last bastions of Catholicism were upended and destabilized. This put the entire power within the jurisdiction of the king. And so, the Buggery Statute of 1533-34, to it was designed not to punish homosexuality and anal sex in particular, but rather to weaken the church during a period of religious transition. With these sins unveiled, the private lives of Catholicism's greatest supporters were placed into doubt. To save their lives, abbots and bishops had to bargain with the king, and as a result, they lost their ability to resist the English Reformation. Ultimately, the king seized and sold off religious monasteries as crown lands. So what were the long-lasting results? Famously, Oscar Wilde was sentenced to many years of hard labor when a libel suit backfired and proved his sexual relationships with friends and servants. In the 1620s, the Earl of Castlehaven was prosecuted for a house in gross disorder, in Cynthia Hurrup's words. He would ultimately be executed in 1631 for charges of rape and sodomy. The last men who died for this law were John Pratt and John Smith, who were found in the midst of the act in 1835, executed outside of Newgate Prison. Execution for this act was suspended in England in 1861. 
The act itself wasn't repealed until 1967, still fairly recently. The 1967 repeal came 10 years after the Wolf and Din report revealed the heavy toll that such legal penalties were extracting on Britain's gay and lesbian populations. The consequences of this law were not simply to strengthen the young Anglican church. It created a long-standing dynamic of normalizing one particular element of sexuality, procreative sex within marriage. It demonized virtually all other forms of sexual interaction, regardless of consent. It criminalized sex and privileged only a single type of sexual conduct, the act of vaginal intercourse for the purpose of creating children among married, good Anglican couples. The social values reflected in this law would have long-lasting impact on the British culture. The defendants who later lost their lives suffered years of hard labor, but were additional casualties to the harsh realities of Reformation-era politics. This has been Footnoting History. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find further reading suggestions related to this week's podcast. You can also like us on our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Join us next week when we'll be talking about queer women in early 20th century detective novels. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!